A few years ago, a few years ago, I recall this time. I think I was, I think I was praying, and as I was praying, I was, I was getting extremely excited and longing for Jesus to come back. Just thinking about, oh, what's it going to be like when Jesus returns? Oh, Jesus, just come right now. I'm so ready. And, and then as I was pondering Jesus coming back, I thought, I'm a little weird. Like, like just think about, think about Jesus coming back. And, and when Jesus comes back or when we die and go be with the Lord, all the things that we cling to in this world goes away. Think about that a little more deeply. The, the money, the status, the vehicles, the retirement account, the earthly food that can taste good but make you sick. You know, all of those things are going to go away. Why am I so excited about losing everything. Like, that was one of the questions that came to me in that time. Why is Jesus' return so great if I'm going to lose so many of the things I cling to in this life? And then the next question, why do I cling to them then? This is what it means to be living in light of the reality of Jesus' return. I mean, for you, do those questions hit you deeply? Why do you cling to the things that you cling to? Jesus himself says you can't serve God and mammon. And by the way, when he's talking about that, he's not just talking about money. He's just talking about stuff, the things. You can't serve God and the things of this, this world. Because our, 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 we have this sinful fleshly tendency to anchor ourselves in this world and what we see, to find our rescue in these things, to find our hope in these things. And we live for these things. I think that these questions should hit us deeply. Especially when I consider the, the society and the country in which we live. We're the, we're the wealthiest country in the world. And we are used to creaturely comforts, aren't we? I mean, we even have the statement now when sometimes we can complain about something and we go, okay, but that's first world problems. Like, we know it's not really a problem. Do you ever wonder, like I do, do you ever wonder if you're blinded to reality because you're too dependent on the comforts in this world or in your life. I remember years ago listening to a missionary and this, this, the, the wife was saying they, they were in a hard area of ministry, ministering to Muslim individuals. And she said, many people in the churches in America will say they're praying for us because it's so hard and they know it's so hard for us. And she said, I want to let you guys know I'm praying for you because you have so much stuff and it can distract you from Jesus. 
I think it's harder for you to live as a Christian in America than it is for me to live as a Christian in X country. Now, maybe for you, you would say, no, I don't struggle with that. I, 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 I don't think that I'm, I'm bound by these creaturely comforts, but I'm just asking you to consider it as we enter into Genesis 19. As we learn about Lot's rescue and Sodom's destruction, we're not only focusing on Sodom, we're focusing on Lot. And I, I can't help but think that we're more like Sodom. We Christians are more like, sorry, not Sodom. We Christians are more like Lot than we care to admit. The main idea of the sermon today is a Christian's loyalty must be for the Lord, not for this dying world's delights. Now, since it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Genesis, I want to make sure we know where we've been and how we got to here in Genesis 19. So let me just backtrack for a moment. Chapter 18, beginning of the chapter, we're told God, and then I believe two angels, show up to Abraham and to his tent. Abraham jumps up and he serves them, and then God tells Abraham that Sarah is going to have a child by this time next year. And then... God discloses to Abraham his intentions to destroy Sodom. And in the context of chapter 18 and 19, just want to be helpful here, it's not just the city of Sodom. Sodom can be a term that refers to the whole area. I was explaining this to one of my children this past week, and they were like, wait a second, is it Sodom and Gomorrah, or is it just Sodom? And I said, well, it'd be like saying, is it Park Township or Holland? We're in Park Township, but we're like in Holland but we're in Park Township. So Sodom and Gomorrah and that region can all be referred to as Sodom. And here, God discloses to Abraham he's going to destroy it, and then Abraham prays. He wants to know this communion with the Lord. He wants to know more of God's character, and so he says, if there's 50 righteous people in the city, would you still destroy it? No, I won't. What if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? What if there's 10? Would you still destroy the city? God says, no, 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 no. And then we get to the end of chapter 18. For the sake of 10, God says, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So the Lord and Abraham departed. Now, I believe Abraham also has a lot of personal interest in this. Because as we go into chapter 19, we realize and we're reminded that Lot lives in Sodom. And some of you or many of you may remember who Lot is. Lot shows up every once in a while in this story of Abraham. But Lot is Abraham's nephew. Abraham rescued Lot in, from the battle that we learned about a couple of months ago. Now Lot's showing up again and he's living in Sodom. Remember, uh, Years and years ago in this narrative, Lot and Abraham switched or, or went different paths. And we're told that Lot pitched his tent near Sodom, but it was a beautiful, wonderful area. Now, Lot, I believe, did have trust in the Lord. I mean, he left his family to sojourn with Abraham. But it seems as though Lot's heart still clung to the comforts of the world. 
because he enters into the city. And just so you know, from the ancient perspective and from the biblical narrative, the city also indicates protection, safety, comfort, provision. Whereas Abraham is sojourning, his comfort, rest, provision, trust is all in the Lord. That's, that's what that is communicating. And Lot is nearing into the city. There's one man by the name of Alan Ross. He gives a character sketch of Lot as a citizen of Sodom. And I think this is a pretty accurate one, so I'm going to read this. Here was an upright citizen, hospitable and generous, a leader of the community who was a judge, meaning that he would screen out wickedness from his town and advise on good living. He knew truth and justice, righteousness and evil, yet in spite of his denunciation of the lifestyle of his people, he preferred the good life of their society. The hour of truth came when the Lord interrupted this life. His true loyalty was revealed as godly, but in the process, his past hypocrisy was uncovered. The saint, Lot, had pitched his tent near the evil city, but the evil city had controlled his life. You think, do you think you might be able to relate to Lot? What are you clinging to? Are the creaturely comforts of society potentially suffocating you? Are you anchoring yourself to them instead of remembering you're anchored to Jesus in the heavens? Lot's tragic living in Sodom is why the main idea of the sermon is that a Christian's loyalty must be for the Lord, not for this dying world's delights. Now, that is in the positive. That, that whole main idea is in the positive because Lot is the anti- antithesis. He's the opposite of how a believer ought to respond. But let's just take that main idea and just go with a Christian's loyalty. And when I say a Christian's loyalty, we're going to be looking at Lot's disloyalty. Okay? I'm using the word Christian, by the way, because that's the relatable term for us today. In the Old Testament, clearly the word Christian is not used because they didn't know Jesus. Um, but I do believe he was a believer. And you could say, why in the world do you think he was a believer? Well, let's just let's, let's read verses 1 through 3 first. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Why would we think that Lot is a believer? Well, one, from the past that he actually followed Abraham. Two, there's similarities in how Lot acts here to how Abraham acted in chapter 18. Do you remember when God and the angels showed up? Abraham's, all right, let's make you a meal. And we see here with Lot, he sees these two men. By the way, we're not told that they're angels. We're not told that he knows they're angels at this time. But he welcomes them in. He's hospitable. He's generous to them. But we also know like that can't be like the deciding factor to know if he's righteous. Um, because we know people who can do externally good things and they're not really trusting in Jesus. But we also have the scriptures, which we even read earlier from 2 Peter 
2. We're told that Lot was a righteous man and his righteous soul was greatly distressed or vexed in Sodom. Lot had faith, but Lot's living in hypocrisy. Now the question, the question is, is will the Lord continue to let Lot live in hypocrisy? Or even the more immediate question is, will the Lord destroy Lot along with Sodom? Because you remember the last numerical request of Abraham? How many in the city? Ten. What if there's only one? Does God care about just one of his people? We're going to find that out, but we need to focus first on Lot and his hypocrisy here. A Christian ought to be loyal to the Lord, not for this dying world. Not for this dying world's delights. In 1 John, the Apostle John writes this, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world is passing away along with its desires. And the Apostle John is writing this to his people to to say, Then why are you living for it? Why are you living for things that are going to die? If you live for things that are going to die, you're going to die with it. Live for what's eternal, which is God himself. There is going to be a day when this sinful, broken, cursed world is going to be done away with completely. Do you really believe that? If you really believe that, then our lives should show it. Lot doesn't seem to believe it. He doesn't seem to believe the dying nature of Sodom. But God exposes Sodom's dying nature. The angels arrive in Sodom, Lot's at the gate, which is symbolic terminology that he was a leader, he was a judge for the city. So we have these two men arrive. He sees the two travelers. He welcomes them graciously into his home. Uh, and, and he actually like forces them to go to his home because they say, we're just going to sleep in the town square. Oh, <laughs> no, don't do that. I think he knows what would happen to them. So he's seeking to protect them and care for them. And then after they eat their meal together in the house, we read this in verses 4 and 5. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Men of the city both young and old, to go to Lot's home, not simply to know, but to fulfill their sensual desires. This is gang sexual abuse. And notice the description we're given here of these men of Sodom, both young and old. It could mean young men and old men, adults, but that word in the Hebrew for young can also describe boys. We don't know exactly or precisely, but what we do know is that Sodom is taken over with insatiable lust for pleasure. 
that would lead to the degrading of themselves and the degrading of other people. Now, I want to address something here specifically. Uh, some, people, some people today will say that Sodom's sin um, really has nothing to do with sexual immorality. Uh, they'll say Sodom was not hospitable. That was really the sin. They weren't generous people. And so they, they didn't care for the poor. And they get that from Ezekiel. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Now, it says nothing about sexual sin with Sodom, right? You don't see sexual sin listed here, right? So there are people who will say, that's what it was. That was the guilt of Sodom. Excess of food, prosperous ease. Is this verse true? Yes. 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 Whatever the Bible says, whatever God says is true. Is that the only thing God says about Sodom? No. When God is comparing Jerusalem to Sodom, they commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Adultery, sexual sin, is that listed here? Yes. I think what some people do, I'm fairly convinced that what some people do, is they want to emphasize one passage at the expense of another in order to excuse. We can't pit God against God. Because then later on, even in Jude, and I don't have the verse on the slides, but later on in Jude, Jude says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. So it's not only the sexual gang activity. It's also the unnatural desire in and of itself. God did not make things this way. They serve as an example, Jude says, by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So, let's merge it all together, though. Was Sodom prideful? Yes. Did Sodom have prosperity and, and ease and great food? And sexual immorality? What society are we describing here? We're talking about Sodom, but it sure sounds like us today, doesn't it? And Jude says Sodom is an example of future eternal punishment for those who refuse to submit to the Lord. So now we have here Lot. He's in his house with his family. The men are demanding that the two men come out to them. And Lot goes out of the door in order to reason with the men. And we're told in the next few verses, like he, he pleads with them, don't do this wickedness. Now, Lot can say this because for, for a couple of reasons. One, he's a judge in the city. 
So he's making a moral declaration. This is wicked. But I think he also does have belief in the Lord. And we're told by Peter that his righteous soul was vexed by the sinful conduct of the Sodomites. And so don't, don't do this wickedness. And you're like, yeah. And then the very next thing he says just reveals utter dumbfounding hypocrisy. Don't take these two men. You can have my unmarried daughters instead. Women, can you imagine if you you heard your dad say that to a raging crowd? Who is this guy? But but let me just stop for a moment and, and sidestep. Sin is always foolish. Did you know that? Sin is always foolish. And we do it because we're believing foolishness and, and sin makes us stupid. Now, sin does a lot of other things. But it does make us stupid. And here we have Lot. And he goes out and they're demanding, they're demanding to have these men. No, 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 no. Take my daughters and said, Ventura, remember. Remember this. Every single person here, sin will always make a fool of you. It will. Just give it time. Even if you think you have it under control. Actually, I would say that is a clear sign that it's made you a fool. I can have my righteousness and my sin all in one person. No, you can't. No, you can't. Oh, I have it under control. No. No, you don't. As the narrative goes on, the men of the city, they reject the notion of taking the daughters. And they press against Lot to get into the house. And it's here that I believe that the angels reveal who they actually are. They open the door, pull Lot in, and strike all the men out there with blindness. I would think that would get one's attention, right? Who are you guys? Where did you come from? And they tell Lot in verses 12 and 13, Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people have become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Now this phrase, when they say the outcry against its people, that could mean that there were other cities, other people groups that were hurt by Sodom and the people in that region. I actually prefer a different translation, which, and a different understanding of the Hebrew, which actually indicates that the cry is coming from within the people themselves. Uh, Kind of like if you think of an addict who feels their emptiness inside and they're always crying out for fulfillment. The, The internal cry of the people of Sodom is condemning them. They're completely lost. 
So the angel tells Lot, warn your family. Get anybody that you're related to. And so Lot goes to find his sons-in-law. Now, wait a second. He has two daughters that aren't married, and these are sons-in-law. What in the world? Does he have two more daughters? What's going on? No, what's actually happening here is ancient world. If you were engaged with someone, you were considered a son-in-law or a daughter-in-law if you were engaged. So these are engaged men. And he goes to tell his sons-in-law. And do you remember how the sons-in-law respond? Ha! Oh, that's funny. They think Lot's joking. They, they, the first response is to assume, good one, man. That was funny. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how Lot might have felt in that moment? Because, see, I imagine Lot did not really think that his sin affected him that much. I imagine Lot thought, I have this under control. I can love mammon, the creaturely comforts, and the Lord. But what does it lead to? His sons-in-law think he's joking. I want you to ask yourself this question. If you were to talk about the judgment that's going to come with your family or with friends, if you were to talk about that judgment, what do you think the response is going to be from those people? Are they going to laugh at you? And, and, and actually, the question is not just, are they going to laugh at you? Because the Bible says in the last days, people are going to be scoffers. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to be people who laugh. The point is, are they going to think you're joking? Have you lived a life that actually shows other people that you believe there is a hell and there is an eternity? Do you live your life that way? Lot thought he had things under control. I can have both. That's Lot. But even though he's a hypocrite here, God still has mercy on him. And we see how a Christian's loyalty is to be for the Lord. Now again, we're working off of Lot's negative behaviors and going with the opposite. Because <laughs> I, I, I hope nobody here, I hope nobody here would say, mm, man, Lot, Ugh, I want to be like Lot. Remember like in the 90s when Michael Jordan was super popular, like Mike, I want to be like Mike. You know, nobody's going to sing like Lot. I want to be like Lot, I want to be. No. We don't want to be like Lot. And in verses 15 through 22, we see Lot contrasting with Abraham's actions in chapter 18. Remember, Abraham was quick and speedy, moving fast to serve the Lord. And now... We're told after Lot talks to his son, sons-in-law, the next morning, the angels come and say, we've got to get out of here. And you see the phrase, what's said of Lot? And Lot lingered. What in the world? You know, there are many of us who have this profound problem in ignoring reality to help ourselves to feel better. And I think that's what Lot's doing here. Now, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything. Yeah, it's going to be destroyed. Whatever. But, you know, I got, I, got a, I got things to do. 
you're still anchored to these things and not listening to the Lord. And so we're told, actually, that the angels grab him, his wife, his daughters by the hand and get him out of the city. And then the angels tell him, go, flee to the hills. And, he's, and then, then he negotiates. What in the world? Didn't you see these two guys blind all the men in the city? And you're negotiating, no, please, please, I can't, I can't go to the hills. Why? Because the sojourning mindset, you know, no safety, no protection, no this, you know, it's like, <gasps> can I just go to a city? And it's a small one. It's the city of Zoar. And we're told in the text that the angels were merciful and they allowed him to go to Zoar. Fine, go. But then the angels also say, don't look on the destruction of Sodom. And so once Lot and his family arrive in Zoar, we read in verses 24 and 26, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. I believe that God miraculously and purposefully rained down fire and sulfur in just judgment of Sodom. And Lot's wife disobeyed the angel's command, turned, and she became just like those in Sodom. A smoldering region taken out in an instant. It was interesting from an archaeological perspective. For a while, people would say, the story of Sodom can't be true. We have no evidence we have no evidence. And then in recent history, there's been digs where they found other places mentioning Sodom. Hmm. We haven't found it, but clearly it existed. It was a miraculous judgment. And you can ask, what kind of God would do this? And to get very personal, is Lot going to get the point? This world is passing away. What was he living for? What was he clinging to? Why was he clinging to it? I think about contrasting him with Abraham. And Abraham has not had an easy life, has he? No. And yet, in a year from now, you're going to have the child. He has waited and waited and waited, and God is giving the promise. Lot has taken and taken and taken, and everything has been taken away. Now, some people could be thinking, whoa, whoa. God needs to take anger management. Like, this is, this is crazy that he would do something like this. And I think there's many people today who only want a God in their own making. We make God submit to us. And so they say, God has to be gracious. God has to be Merciful. But you know, mercy makes no sense without judgment. Think about that. Grace makes no sense without judgment. And I remember, I remember hearing this one person, she was probably around 20 years old, and she, she grew up in church and she said, I always heard, God loves me, God loves you, God loves us, God loves, 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 loves. And it kind of made me sick. Because it had no meaning. There was no depth to it. There was no understanding 
of how God is holy, 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 wonderful, righteous, true, great, awesome, mighty. There was this idea of love that just kind of meant, I affirm you in whatever you want. I think what God is communicating in this narrative, at least in part, is that God is just and God is merciful. And you will understand mercy if you see justice. You will praise the Lord all the more if you understand what you deserve and what he has given in mercy. I think this is what's communicated even to the wandering Israelites who were the first readers of this narrative. They're reminded, we cannot serve God and the Canaanites who are engaging in similar things, who have their cities and their walls and we're sojourning. I think it's true for us. I can't love God and this world. But maybe as you hear this and Maybe you're feeling convicted. And some of you, as you feel this conviction, you're, you're, you might be thinking, okay, okay, then I'm never going to do it again, whatever that thing is. And I'm going to try really hard, and I'm going to stop it, because that always works. The application is not just try harder. The application is look to Jesus Cling to him, pray and plead for mercy and grace and help and strength. Because, see, the issue with Sodom is not just the uh, prosperous ease and the sexual immorality. Those were issues, but those were fruit. Those were fruit of a heart that didn't love Jesus. It didn't love God. We need our hearts changed. We need God to continue to form and mold our hearts so that we genuinely love him and that we want him. We need to be pleading to the Lord for this and reaching for him. God, help, give me love for you. And we know, we know that he can and we know that he will because we have a mediator. And I'm bringing up this term mediator because that's actually how this chapter or this section ends. Who was, who was praying in chapter 18? Who? Abraham. Now we're looking at, is God going to answer Abraham's heart? And we look at verses 27 and 29. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Here's the conclusion. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. Do you hear that? He remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God remembered Abraham because it was through Abraham that the nations would be blessed and it's Abraham who is praying on behalf. What an encouragement 
to Lot that ought to be that Abraham was concerned for his soul. And we have a greater mediator, right? Ventura, if you have turned and trusted in Jesus, you have a mediator who is God the Son, who the Bible says he prays for you. And he doesn't stop. The, this Satan accuses night and day, and Jesus prays never-endingly for us. Praise God that Jesus prays for us. So, so question just real quick. Have you, do you know Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus? If you haven't, at the end of the service, there'll be people up here ready and willing to talk to you about that. But I hope you would take this seriously. There is a real judgment that Sodom points to. I hope you take this seriously. And if you're a Christian and you're feeling conviction this morning, don't just, don't just be like Lot and say, ah, well, it's fine, and linger. That's going to silence the conviction. Because the New Testament brings up Sodom multiple occasions for application purposes for us. And I want to go through just a couple. If you know Jesus... Or even if you don't, you need to heed what it says here. One is people who have known about Jesus and rejected him incur a stricter judgment for eternity than even Sodom's judgment. Did you know that? When Jesus is on the earth, he's talking to people who didn't, I, I don't think those people actually acted out like Sodomites did. These were like religious people. These were people who were doing the good things. And so can you imagine when Jesus says to them that, hey, if I would have shown up in Sodom, Sodom would have repented. And I'm here in front of your face and you reject me. And then Jesus says, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom than it will be for you. How do you think those people felt when they heard that? Well, how dare you? No, 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 no. How dare us? Because the, the issue is the heart, right? And I actually think the implication can extend to this whole time period where the scriptures are known and people grow up in church and people know the biblical things and they know the biblical terminology and they, they know, they know, they know, they know. But do you remember what Jesus says that he's going to say to some people in the judgment? You're going to say, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? In your name. And what is Jesus going to say? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Do you think Jesus is just pretending that that's going to happen? Is he just threatening people with that statement? Or is it really going to happen? Is it really going to happen? Yes. yes. May it not happen to you. You could be embracing Lot's life. And I cannot even fathom. I can't even fathom. How eternal hell can have degrees of punishment. 
I guarantee you that if I'm standing at the judgment and one of you, Jesus says, depart, there's going to be weeping. Now is the time to turn to Jesus, to love, love him, not fake actions, love him. Now is the time. Without him, you're on your way to condemnation. And some people will say, well, wait a second. If I don't trust Jesus, then I'm going to be condemned? No, 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 no. John 3, 17, you're already condemned. Jesus came to save. Jesus took, so to speak, the sulfur, the just punishment on himself. And then we sang earlier in the service that God, the just, looked on Jesus and was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Or as Colby read in the service, where God says to the people, why would you choose death? Today, turn. Turn to Christ. Two other things that we see, or I want to reveal in the New Testament, is one, that a believer's soul is vexed in hypocrisy. Lot's righteous soul was vexed. But the text also reveals he allowed his soul to be vexed because he stayed in it. He, he, he thought the comforts of this world were worth it. Do you find yourself there? Do you find yourself there? I mean, we live, we live in a society that's just like Sodom. Don't say it's not. I look at the statistics of all the types of, or different types of sexual sin and sexual promiscuity and pornography and the rates and percentages of people who view this stuff. And even within the church. And by the way, that fuels, pornography fuels the sex trafficking industry. You cannot say you're not a part of that if you're engaging in it. And what a travesty. That instead of viewing people as created in the image of God and loving them, we have degraded them to just consume. If you're a believer, your soul is vexed. It should be distressed in this. But maybe for some of you, you say, well, Pastor Timothy, I'm not uh, dealing with the sexual sin, so I'm fine. Well, don't you remember the other sins of Sodom? Don't you remember that he says that it was prosperous ease? And, and, and it's, not, it's not that having prosperity is sin. It's that we anchor ourselves in it that this is, yeah, mm, I'm good because of this. But the New Testament says a righteous soul is vexed in this. And God knows how to rescue the godly from the trials. Listen, if Lot wasn't going to get the Sodom out of his heart, God was going to get Lot out of Sodom. And that's how it is with all those he has saved. 
You know, the Apostle Paul, he warns churches at times, saying, I've warned you as I've warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And some people look at that and go, wait a second, I thought they were Christians. Is Paul saying they can lose their salvation? No! Paul is saying, if you were saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved, because that's salvation. You must repent. You must repent and not coddle the sin. Lot, Lot actually reminds me of the Ephesian church in Revelation. Do you remember the positives of the Ephesian church? Maybe some of you know. The positives of the Ephesian church, they had their doctrine right, and they fought against the sexual sinners out there. And not just sexual sinners out there. It was like the people who claimed to be Christians and, and, and engaging in sexual immorality. Right doctrine. And they fought against the sexual license within professing believers. That sound like, that sounds good. Sounds good. Do you remember what the critique was for Ephesus? I have this against you. You've lost the love you had at first. And I want to ask you if you can resonate with that. I think the love you had at first is talking about the love for the Lord and love for fellow believers. I think it's both. So so let me just ask you, your love for fellow believers, have you lost that? Man, I used to love so much. I used to just... And I, I, don't, I don't have it. it. And maybe some of you say, no, I got love. I got love. Okay, let's just test it. 1 Corinthians 13, love is. You're not very excited about that. <laughs> or old King James, love is long-suffering. Have you lost that with other believers? Love believes all things, hopes all things endures all things, which means enduring, there's problems. But are we, are we enduring? And then let me ask you, ultimately what's important is the relationship with the Lord. Where's your relationship with God? Where's your communion with him? Is, does it exist or has it long been forgotten? If you are a believer, you have to repent. You have to turn back and find and discover the freedom that he gives. Because he, he is more freeing. And so therefore, a believer, and I don't have this last one, a believer must live righteously. Jude, take time just to read the book of Jude. One chapter. He brings up Sodom, and he says that people who indulge in sensuality, even if they say they're spiritual, are fakes. And then Jude calls genuine believers to live in God's love, to pray, to encourage one another, and wait for Jesus' return. It's a very appropriate illustration with Sodom. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is going to rescue you. So love each other and anticipate Jesus coming back when he takes everything away and gives you all of him. And then, and then 
Jude goes on to give these precious promises that, oh, and by the way, God's going to make sure you follow after him. We're going to read that doxology at the end of this service. He's going to make sure. Why? Because Jesus, the perfect mediator who is praying for you. Do you know him? Do you trust him? So if you are his, you will repent and will you repent? God truly is more glorious, more wondrous than any worldly comfort than Sodom or America could give us. And someday when he returns, while he will condemn the world, he will welcome all his children into his arms for all eternity. All of the brokenness that we've clung to is going to go away. And we will be eternally happy because we will finally see him as he is. So why not let go of the things today? A Christian's loyalty must be for the Lord, not for a dying world's delights. Let's pray. Abba, thank you. And we need you. Please do not allow anyone here to ignore the depth and weightiness of this passage. Both as it relates to your judgment and as it relates to your mercy. Oh, Father, I pray that we would see how beautiful it is, how wonderful it is that you have saved us and promised to be with us, to never leave us, and for Christ to always intercede for us. Lord, may we always know, too, that when there is confession, there is, there is forgiveness. And we don't have to twist your arm. You have given yourself. So to you be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.